Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. Hey, we're here today with Dr. Rick Hansen talking about how to build more loving relationships with our teenagers. Dr. Hansen is the author of numerous books. Dr. Hansen is the New York Times best-selling author of numerous books on psychology, philosophy, and relationships. He has written the book Neurodharma, the book Resilient, the book Hardwiring Happiness, the book Just One Thing, the book Buddha's Brain, the book Mother Nurture, and the new book Making Great Relationships. Dr. Hansen is a psychologist. He is a senior fellow of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and he is a summa cum laude graduate of the UCLA founder of the Wellspring Institute, and he is a summa cum laude graduate of UCLA and founder of the Wellspring Institute. Dr. Hansen is a psychologist. He's a senior fellow of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and he is the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. He has been invited to speak at NASA, Oxford, Stanford, Harvard, and many other major universities. He's taught in meditation centers worldwide, and he's a world-renowned expert on the confluence between Eastern philosophy and modern neuroscience. Really excited to speak with Dr. Hansen today about what gets in the way of a truly deep connection between parents and teenagers and how we can foster a more loving bond with our teens through some simple practices. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to speak with you. Well, it's an honor to be here. And first, I remember being a teenager painfully well. And also, my wife and I have raised two adult kids at this point through the teen years, which I also remember painfully well. So, you know, there's a saying in medicine, actually, that good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And I've had a lot of experience. So there might be something in it that could be of use to others. I love that. And I've read three of your books now and really seem to kind of merge like Eastern philosophy with modern psychology, neuroscience in a really cool way. And so I'm really excited to see how that would apply mm. to the family setting. Great. This one I just finished this morning, Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. You've already written a handful of books, but you felt that there was still a need for a book specifically dedicated to great relationships. What did you think was kind of unique or missing in the conversation that was needed to write this book? There are millions of books about relationships. 
almost none of them tell you what to actually do or say or think that will solve a relationship problem. And so based on my own background as a longtime couples counselor, family therapist, child therapist, husband for almost 41 years now, raising two kids, lots of business consulting too, I wanted to offer to people in really short chapters, 50 super short chapters, each one's three to five pages long, pretty much, essentially, okay, what can you do? What do you actually do? And, you know, I've been a therapist for a really long time, and it's made me, I think, nicer, but it's also made me blunter. And the truth is, for many people, they don't know what to do, or they do know what to do, but they can't get themselves to do it. And so that's what this book's about. What can you actually do? And a lot of people, as a result, with your teenagers, or with their partner, or with their boss, or coworkers, or neighbor, they feel stuck. They're like, it's okay, maybe it's not horrible, but perhaps they're just dealing with some kind of ongoing low-grade background conflict with a kid, or a feeling that they're losing connection or losing traction, they're no longer able to influence their teenager, or there are other relationships in their life that are they just feel unsatisfying, or there's a problem in them. They feel stuck. And what's really striking is to realize we have the power. We have the power to make them better, right? And basically what that book's about, Making Great Relationships, it's about using your power to literally make your relationships better every day with what you think and say. And I love that every chapter has a how section that kind of really, it's not just like, hey, here's some ideas and see what you can do with it. There's practical kind of how do you put this into practice mm. in your life. And one of the earlier chapters that really stuck out to me was number four, which is about feeling cared about. And uh, yeah, it seems like so important. And I wonder what your book is really from the perspective of how we can feel more cared about. I wonder how we as parents can make sure that we're providing an environment where our children feel cared about or where our teenagers specifically feel cared about. And if there's anything we can do that would facilitate that. Oh, yeah. So the way the book is structured is the way that I think it's important to approach things in general, which is you start by befriending yourself. So that chapter four out of 50 is in the part that's about befriending yourself because that's foundational. It's on that foundation then that our cup gets filled up from the inside out and then we have more to give to others, including in situations in which people can start to feel like parents can, like you're running on empty or you're dealing with a partner, maybe adolescents who are frankly annoying or something or they're kind of wounding because they are so self-absorbed. Something is happening there. So you got to fill yourself up so that you can be patient and build up inner shock absorbers in a sense of feeling cared about, let's say, yourself, because sometimes there's not much coming your way from the outside in. But part two of the book is very much about, I call it warming the heart, how you deliberately can cultivate compassion, kindness, seeing the being behind the eyes in ways that research shows actually change neural structure and function by deliberately cultivating those things. So I'll tell you a couple of things that I think are really important with adolescents. And I wish I, I did more of it, honestly, when our kids were young. And I've tried to learn from that experience. I think there's a, even a chapter, it's called See the Being Behind the Eyes. It's so easy to get reactive to teenagers who are being disdainful or cold, 
dismissive. And we live in a culture that normalizes adolescents being kind of pissy toward their parents. It's like, well, they're all pissy. You look at TV shows, the kids are just pissy. I hope that's a technical term and not <laughs> too R-rated for this PG podcast. But That is the technical term, yeah. They're kind of nasty and it's normalized. Okay, so there you are on the receiving end of that. And maybe you feel let down by your partner's not backing you in terms of your authority. And so you're holding the bag is having to hold the line with the kids because you're maybe your ex is like Disneyland dad or something like that. What do you do? Well, continuing to recognize that behind that angry face or behind that kind of cool distance or whatever it might be behind the eye roll that's coming your way mom is a precious vulnerable being so important to hold on to that sense precious vulnerable being you could still exercise authority my theory of parenting is large pasture real fences including with adolescents but a large pasture but you could still see the being behind the eyes and the other suggestion that again has really helped me and i wish i had kept it in mind is to take the long view. So many things happen when kids are teenagers that change the course of their relationship with their parents for the next 40 years. Think about ourselves. We're adults, you know. My parents did stuff, said stuff that pissed me off for 30 years. And it wasn't a be-all and end-all. I wasn't abused. It wasn't horrible. But even that really landed. The look on my father's face, you know, the last time he spanked me, as maybe I was maybe 12 or 13 or something, like... Ugh. give thought to the long view to what are the real stakes over the long haul and preserving your relationship with the kid and maybe the last thing i'll just say is being really careful about anger anger is normal it's a normal emotion but if you think about what's the one emotion that's most likely to create a lasting breach or issue with a teenager it's when we speak or act from anger it's one thing to experience it and to be mindful of it and to process it and maybe talk about it with your co-parent or with friends, et cetera. But to come from anger at your kids can be very consequential. And that's something to be super careful about. I love that. And it ties right in with you talk about compassion. In the book, there's a chapter 14, yeah. which is on having compassion. And I love that what you talk about in here is recognizing the suffering in others. And I think it's so easy mm -hmm. to get focused on our own suffering, say, oh my gosh, yeah. I'm under so much pressure at work. And then I come home and, you know, my kids are treating me like a doormat and focusing on how hurtful that is for ourselves. But what you point out that I love is if we can turn that also and look at the suffering that they're going through. And I wonder what kind of any suggestions you might have on just how we can kind of reframe that or how we can start yeah. to see that a little bit better. Yeah, I'm really glad you foregrounded that. And by suffering, it's a very broad term. So again, let's think about a, a teenager today. Here you are. What's your objective situation as a teenager? It's completely abnormal. It's completely abnormal. First of all, you think about hunter-gatherer bands in which human beings lived for 97% of the time we walked the earth in groups of 40 or so people who lived together mostly their whole lives in which everybody had a very important role and could see directly the results of actions for better or worse. Same with even quite recently, my dad grew up on a ranch in North Dakota, born in 1918, no longer with us, bless his memory. And in that world, he had an important role as a teenager. It was so important, actually, that he only went to school two quarters out of three over the school year because he had to come home for the harvest in the springtime. 
for example, and but that was the real world. He eventually got a PhD in zoology and became a college professor and all the rest of that. So, it, you know, he kept with it. But the point being that he could see directly. But now what do we do with teenagers? We sequester them in these sort of strange places, schools and malls. We ask them to study all kinds of things that they know they'll never use or remember a year later, let alone two days later. We make them do that. We drive them toward, you know, kind of paths of training that extend years and years into the future while asking them to deny the immediate pleasures of sex, drugs, and rock and roll so that they can end up having a life like they're bored, stressed out, and unhappy parents. Yeah, don't you want to be like me? (laughs) Yeah, it's a crazy maker in a lot of ways. And I mean, the work of a kid in our culture is not hurting goats in most cases, right? But it is about going to school, and there's a place for that and so forth. But it's tough. It's challenging. It's really challenging. Group pressure, social media, it's intense. The suicide rate among teenagers is real. Teenage depression is really real. A lot of meanness, a lot of mean girls, mean boys, a lot of cyberbullying. If you don't have a perfect body, you can just feel horrible. You know, I've known people who maybe arguably we're carrying 10 to 15 extra pounds and then you know i know the story of a young woman in college you know just basically said to her parents what do you think it's like to be the second fattest girl in the cafeteria and this was not a fat person but just the you know the fixation of the standards it's tough so it's really important to be able to look past the surface which might be annoying or dismissive or disdainful toward you as a parent, behind that surface is someone who's, you know, probably not that happy. Probably, maybe not depressed, maybe not mental illness, but not that happy. And to look beneath, that's the point of my long rant. Thanks for putting up with it. To look beneath the surface of the, I'm fine. I'm fine. Going to my room now. Leave me alone. You know what I mean? To look beneath that surface with your empathy and your imagination, what could be going on under the surface? And that's where compassion comes in. And even if you can't do anything about it, maybe the kid pushes away your compassion because they don't want to be revealed with you. They don't want to disclose or be intimate emotionally with you. But you can still rest in a kindness, a lovingness, a compassion. That's your superpower as a parent, that you will walk through a burning building for your kid. And to just live in the knowing of that, you know, and to have a kind of family environment in which there's an openness to talking in real ways about what's going on. What do you, okay, I love that because, and you talk about good intentions in the book and kind of recognizing the good intentions in others. But a lot of times as parents of teenagers, we're on the other end of that, where we have good intentions and we're trying to help them out. And then in response, they slam the door on us and they say, leave me alone. And so it's almost like, I'm just trying to help you out and protect you from some of the hard things that I went through when I was a teenager and warn you about some things, but it gets kind of interpreted in the wrong way. And I wonder what we can do when we're on the other side of that, when we feel like, hey, we have good intentions and we're just trying our best to kind of, you know, be helpful or offer some advice or support or anything like that. And it's kind of being turned against us or not like received in that way. Yeah, a couple of suggestions, and these are generalizations, so everybody has to, you know, apply them to themselves. First of all, to recognize that biologically, adolescence increases egocentrism. 
it's normal for adolescents to be self-absorbed, to be really pretty clueless or indifferent to all the crud and suffering that their parents are dealing with, and to be ungrateful, ungenerous. That's really quite normal. There are some wonderful exceptions to that. You know, the kid who's sweet as the day is long, very generous, very kind, very supportive. Part of it is cultural. Western culture, American culture has thoroughly enabled a kind of self-centeredness and normalized a self-centeredness in kids, particularly in, in many parts of the country, including, you know, affluent urban areas in which I live on the West Coast. It's not good, right? But if you normalize it, doesn't mean thinking it's good. But if you just realize, you know, it's not personal. Your kid is self-absorbed and should kind of care less about you. Maybe if you were hit by a bus or got, you know, dealing with cancer, they might give you a little bit of attention. (laughs) But their self-absorption, which I found so offensive, you know, when our kids were young, Uh, belatedly, I began to realize it wasn't about me. It's so easy to take it personally. In other words, try not to take it personally. It doesn't mean giving up our, our moral stand as a parent, that we're a stand for treating other people like they matter, whether it's your peers at school or the people you're living with who've walked through burning buildings or nearly the equivalent to take good care of you for the first 14, 15, 16, 19 years of your life, let's say. You know, We can be a stand for that, but still we can accept and not take it so personally when teenagers are incredibly self-absorbed. Yeah, this is one of my favorite chapters in the book is on taking it less personally. And you talk on page 110 about intentions. I think that's a large part of what would get wrong is I hear parents so often saying, oh, my teen is manipulative and controlling Mm -hmm. and argumentative. And all of these things are us like projecting intentions onto them that well, they're manipulating me. Their intention is to you know, yeah. get me to do X, Y, and Z and to control me. Maybe that's true, but also just maybe it's not really even about us, like making it about us that, oh, they're doing this to me yeah. when really like they've got a lot going on themselves and maybe they're just dealing with their own stuff yeah. and it's not so much about us. And I wonder how we can sort of free ourselves from that or any ways to kind of check ourselves and take a step back and just make it less about ourselves. I think I'm so glad you put that up because we tend psychologically, it's called, these are called attributions. What are the states of mind, including the intentions that we attribute to others, we project onto others, as you put it. And very often, we're just bit players in our kids' lives. They're so self-absorbed. They're just so thinking about that weird comment that some boy made, you know, two rows over in geometry class. And that's what they're, and they're caught up in that, or they're caught up with social media in the back and forth or texting their friends or waking up at one in the morning to text their friends about stuff. You know, that's the world they're living in. We're just kind of floating around the edges. So a lot of what they do is maybe clueless and Maybe there's a place for, you know, setting some standards and trying to arrange routines in your home and ways of living together. For example, insisting on, you know, we have dinner together. We don't just take our food to our separate rooms. We, you know, we do as a family. We listen to each other. We treat each other like we matter. That's our culture here. Modeled 
by the parents, even if they're not living together, but how the parents are. You know, you could be a stand for those things, but we don't have to attribute negative intent to our kids so much and be very careful about that. I find another thing that's so powerful, and most parents don't do it, is they're not vulnerable with dignity. They tend to, I did, you know, they lecture their kids, they scold their kids, they, you know, they give their kids advice, or maybe they inform their kids about things, or maybe they just mention in passing, like, yeah, I had a really stressful day, but they're not very authentic about it. They're not very revealed. And I think it's important to be careful about not spilling your guts and trying to put your kids in the role of pseudo-therapist to you, especially, for example, if you're a divorced family, you know, you don't want to make your teenager your co-parent, you know, like, careful with that. But to just be real, just in simple terms, and there's a formula, you know, it's in the book from nonviolent communication, which essentially follows the format of when X happens, I feel Y because I need Z. And you can just imagine a way of being vulnerable with dignity or dignified vulnerability. You're not being a mess. You're still the parent. You're still the adult. You're keeping your mom hat on, your dad hat on. You're keeping your grown-up hat on. While being able to say, for example, you know, when you walk in and I'm just eager to say hi and to connect, you know, when you come home after school and I say, hi, how you doing? and you ignore me entirely, walk past me, don't make eye contact, and don't take your earbuds out, and walk directly to your room. When that happens, just described very accurately, matter-of-factly, not with a lot of tone. When you do that, and you're like, so you give me that attitude, and no, like a neutral description, but accurate. When that happens, no blame, just factually, I feel. You know, that's the second part. I feel, I feel sad. I feel hurt. Like, oh, I like you and just wanted, you know, 10 seconds of contact, really. But when that happens, I just kind of feel bad, you know, and maybe that bad feeling is a little turbocharged by my own childhood in which I was left out a lot and kind of felt unseen and like the run of the litter. I'm not laying that on you, Sally, or Bobby or somebody, whatever your kid's name is. I'm just saying that's how, that's what it's like to be me when that happens. Because deep down, I need just ordinary human contact. Not more, but not less, just ordinary human contact. I need to feel like I kind of exist for you. I know you have a billion things going. I just kind of need 10 seconds here and half a minute there where I feel like, oh, I exist for you and I matter. And you'll do what you do, but I just wanted to tell you how it is for me. Boom. Like that's vulnerable. Yeah, that's dignified vulnerability, vulnerable dignity, and and how rare that is. And I sure wish I did more of that when our kids were teens. We're here with Dr. Rick Hansen talking about how to build a deeper and more loving relationship with our teenagers. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. The basic question, what good do you want to grow in? What's the good that you want to grow inside yourself? What's the good you seek to grow inside your kid? From a very practical neurological standpoint, Any lasting change for the better inside us involves turning states into traits, 
turning passing experiences into lasting physical changes in the brain. There's a lot of research that much parental control is unnecessary and unskillful, especially when kids are young, on the one hand. On the other hand, I find that a lot of parents, for all that's said about helicopter parents, many parents, frankly, many dads in particular, are way too checked out on what's actually going on. They're not going to their kids' events. They don't go to the school meetings. They're not, they're not involved in their homework. They don't know what's going on. You know, they're not open to interaction. There's a distance and a remoteness there. Not good. So it's important to do both, you know, intimacy and autonomy. Intimacy and autonomy come together. And oftentimes there's kind of a bargain that's struck where you basically cut a deal with the kid. It's counterintuitive. But the fastest way to restore your own power and the fastest way to get a good result from others is to admit the maximum reasonable fault and then move on. It's a cut to the chase. And I think about my parents who were loving, decent people raised in traditional ways. They never admitted fault when I was growing up, ever. I think it's important for parents to cop to their part, whatever it might be. And you decide, you the parent decides what's reasonable, but then go to the maximum. And so it might look like this, you know, kid says, you never listen to me or something. Well, okay, I really do want to listen to you. And I'm sure I haven't listened to you well enough in the past, you know, and if there's particular times, I'm all ears, but I totally want to listen to you now. Whatever I messed up in the past, I do not want to do that anymore. What would it look like if I really listened to you? What do you mean, listen? Do you mean agreeing with you? Since I can, of course, listen to you, but doesn't mean I necessarily agree with you, which frankly is what a lot of people mean when they use the word listen. But to try to burrow down to what's the maximum you can cop to and change going forward. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.